This is such an honor, really, for me to be able to join in with this series. And a guilt and shame being the seventh, um, the seventh of eight sermons on emotional intelligence. So emotional intelligence is something interesting that it's actually, you see it a lot. I see it a lot, and I don't know if it's because I search for it on Google or what. But I see emotional intelligence pop up a lot. Um, and it's the whole EQ versus IQ. Uh, in, in intelligence quotient versus emotional quotient, if you want to get technical. And the idea when you're highly emotionally intelligent is that you have a high awareness of emotions and you have skilled maneuvering with those emotions. And that's really our goal as a church. And if we could kind of boil down our thesis through this whole sermon series, it would be that an emotionally intelligent church reflects Christ more fully. An emotionally intelligent church reflects Christ more fully. And I know maybe that isn't the exact way that we've said it before, but I think that might boil it down. And I've been thinking of emotions as a little bit like a chariot. So with a chariot, you've got a bunch of horses and you've got somebody holding the reins, right? Well, I, I picture emotions being like the horses. And I picture the one holding the reins as our belief system. Whatever you believe is going to steer. And oftentimes, I think that guilt and shame are one of the strongest horses that are driving what we do. Unfortunately, that shouldn't be the case. I think that joy should actually be the strongest horse. But I think that often, even in the church, maybe even especially in religious uh, circles, that guilt and shame is actually the stronger one, the stronger motivator that causes us to move and act. So let's talk a little bit about guilt and shame. So guilt is a little bit more of uh, punishment-related Shame is a little bit more uh, socially related. Um, when you're thinking of guilt, you might have this voice in your head that says, what have you done? When you're thinking of shame or the emotion of shame comes up, you might hear a voice that says, who have you become? Or what have you become? Shame is um, very much of a, a feeling of something that was done wrong needs to be righted. Uh, sorry, guilt, if I didn't say that. Guilt is something has been done wrong, needs to be righted. And shame is more tied to identity. Who am I? What have I become? So I like to also think about uh, the emotions of guilt and shame in this way. I was driving down the road not too long ago. And all of a sudden... The, this beeping, you know, starts happening and, and the light starts flashing at me, uh, warn, uh, some sort of a warning sign. So it, it kind of interrupted my, the music I was listening to, so I turned my music up and, you know, just like <laughs> praising the Lord, you know, just while I was driving. Uh, and immediately you're concerned for my car, which you should be, because that is not something that you typically should do with a warning when you see something flashing at you. In a similar way, guilt and shame are warning triggers for us. So what the car didn't know is that I had a heavy box sitting in my passenger seat. 
the car didn't ha- all it was designed to do was to tell me that there is something wrong. And in a similar way, guilt and shame are warnings saying, warning, warning, something is wrong. Now, the problem is, is that they can lie to you. We should never trust these emotions, but we should never ignore them. What if I got a screwdriver and a hammer without alarm in my car and dug into that thing and just got a hammer and pulled that thing out? That wouldn't be a good idea either because that system was put in there for a reason, for our protection, was it not? In a similar way, God gave us these emotions and a conscience that works together with our emotions to protect us. And so I like to think of the conscience and the emotions of guilt and shame working together. The conscience is a little bit like a prophet. It will come to you and it will preach at you. It will tell you that you need to repent. But the problem is also in a similar way with the alarm is that a prophet can also be a false prophet. It could come to you and tell you that you've done something wrong when in fact, maybe you haven't. So the key, as we'll get to, is figuring out what to do with these emotions when they come to us. We have the option of reacting to our conscience and these emotions. Every time they come, we have decisions to make. Do we listen to these emotions or not? Now, there are three ditches uh, on with your conscience and how to handle your conscience that you don't want to be in. One is the gullible conscience. This is the conscience that takes any sort of a law or any sort of a standard and just immediately applies it and then turns around and starts to preach it towards others and putting that standard upon them. That's the gullible conscience. The weak conscience is weighted down and is super sensitive by every standard around them and they become immobile. We don't want to be there either. Then there's the numb conscience. That would be the one that figured out a way to silence the alarm. And we don't want to be there either because we no longer hear the warning signs. The, the place where we want to be with our conscience is the keen conscience, where we are aware and we hear the warning signs, and then we decipher from there. So... These praise songs that we've been singing this morning, they're all about the gospel. And I, I want to continue to worship the Lord this morning. But I want to think through, what role does, Christian, does guilt and shame play in a Christian's life? What role did it play in our conversion? What role does it play as a Christian? So think about what role guilt and shame played to bring you to Christ. Did God not actually use guilt and shame as warning signals to you to bring you to Christ? Absolutely he did. When we heard of Christ, we heard about this guiltless man, the only guiltless man that has ever existed, being treated as a criminal and being shamed on the cross, being treated as scum. And then we heard and we found out that Jesus actually was an offering 
of God. God offered Jesus in our place so that our guilt can be removed. Also, I want to define guilt and shame in that um, there's positional guilt and there's actual events of being shamed, but then there's emotions of guilt. And today we're talking about the emotions. So the, the positional guilt is something that in the gospel has been removed. We are no longer guilty before God. We have been declared righteous. But we still have these emotions of guilt. So today we'll be talking mainly about the emotion of guilt and shame. So we've become Christians. We've heard about this Jesus who removed our guilt by, uh, by, by being punished on the cross in our place. Isaiah 53 tells us that God offered Jesus as a lamb and that he was pierced for our iniquities and that he was bruised for our transgressions and that God offered him as a guilt offering in our place. And when we heard this, we believed it. But as that belief throughout, in the middle of that belief process, we also believed that we were the sinners that needed to be punished. And when we see that Jesus was punished in our place, we go, yeah, that guilt that I feel, I'm actually going to lay that at the feet of Jesus and trust that Jesus paid for my guilt in full. And the shame that we felt, oh, what have I become? What have I done? Was actually used by God to bring us to a point to where we laid ourselves before him and cried out to him in mercy. If you haven't already turned to Psalm 51, have that ready. Because we're going to look at how God used guilt and shame in the life of David through the prophet Nathan. So just have that ready. But what we want to do is we want to equip the church on how to, like we said, have a high awareness of these emotions and then have also skilled maneuvering with these emotions. That <clears throat> is so important, especially with this particular emotion because so much of us are weighted down and enslaved by these. Maybe even these emotions of guilt and shame more so than the others. We've said uh, throughout this sermon series that there are three things that we need to do with our emotions. We need to sift them, we need them to be conformed, and we need to harness them. And those are the three things that I want to go through with you today and help you and equip you to do with these emotions. So first, we need to sift them. We need to sift them through faith-filled hearing. Then we're going to look at conforming them through spirit-filled worship, and then if you're a note taker, if you want to write these down, so the sifting and conforming and harnessing, sifting through faith-filled hearing, conforming through spirit-filled worship, and harness through gospel-centered love. So we're going to go through each one of these. So first, sifting through faith-filled hearing. As Christians, we walk by faith, not by law-keeping. It's very important. This is a super important key. As Christians, we walk by faith, not by law-keeping. 
So what happens is that we get in this cycle of thinking that we need to obey the law in order for God to please us. Now, as human beings, not just Christians, we, what we do is we actually take any law or any standard that is out there and we get in this habit of thinking that we need to obey or keep that standard in order to feel good about ourselves or as a Christian in order to feel right with God. But we don't live that way as Christians. Why? Because when you look at the law with eyes of faith, and what do I mean by eyes of faith? When you look at the law as a fulfilled law, it changes everything. Do you know what I mean? Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. We don't look at the law as something to be fulfilled in order for God to accept us. Jesus did that. Jesus obeyed the law in our place. So as those who are dealing with guilt and shame over maybe a failed obedience to the law or failed observance to any sort of a standard, we look at the law of God and the standard of God with with eyes of faith. You know, um, guilt and shame are supposed to be calls to action. They're supposed to be very quick, moving in and out. They're supposed to move us to the, the throne of grace very quickly if it's a legitimate um, guilt and shame. But what happens is we actually dwell on those. We set up camp. We move into the house. I have a little note here that says that guilt and shame, guilt and shame heart legalism. The reason is that when we actually get in this habit of thinking that we please God or or that that God accepts us through our law-keeping, that is legalism. And legalism and guilt and shame love to live in the same house together. Now again, some of you today, and I know you're just like me, a lot of times you're weighted down and burdened by guilt and shame. And there are two different things you can do with that. If it's legitimate guilt, if you actually have sinned, there is a throne of grace to bring that to. If it's not legitimate, then you can decipher that through the eyes of faith by looking at the law as a law fulfilled. Also, faith sees the law boiled down to mainly love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. What did the Pharisees do with the law? They took every little jot and tittle and detail and said, I need to follow all of these little things. And Jesus said, you fulfilled the whole law if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. So the eyes of faith not only see it as a fulfilled law, but a law that is boiled down to love. Have you guys ever heard of the, the show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Don't watch it. It's horrible. <laughs> but it's, it's funny. It can be funny. But there's some things in it that, yeah, I don't recommend. But what's interesting, coming back to the conscience, is that the conscience is actually not very smart. But the conscience is also a little bit like an improviser. 
Whose Line Is It Anyway is, like a, is, is basically a bunch of guys improvising. Um, they, they don't have any lines. They just kind of make it up as they go along. The conscience is an improviser. It has this vague idea of what to do. It's what these, these improvisers do. They give them a, a topic, and they basically just say, go. The conscience has this vague idea that it's supposed to tell you that you've done something wrong. But it needs a line to be fed. It, you need to feed your, your conscience with lines to say. It's going to say something to you either way. But if you feed it the gospel, if you feed it things like, Christ has fulfilled the law on my, my behalf. If you feed it a standard that doesn't change the word of God and not all these other voices and standards out there from the world or from your, your own self-imposed standards, but feed your conscience the word of God, the standards that, that don't change, the word of the Lord endures forever. No other word does and always changes. So, so hopefully that helps to discern and to sift when we actually feel these emotions of guilt and shame. When it comes up and it's just kind of vague and you can't put your finger on why do I feel so bad and it's not something particular, then it's probably not the Holy Spirit. So if it's just like, ah, I just feel just horrible about myself. If you can't put your finger on like a, a, a particular character of God or, or a commandment of God or something specific, then you should probably just take it to the throne of grace and say, Lord, remove this from me until he actually gives you a specific sin that you need to turn from. So secondly, we need these emotions to be conformed through spirit-filled worship. So one thing that happens when we become Christians is that we're actually freed up from being obsessed with ourselves. And with these emotions, a lot of times what happens is we turn inward and we become enslaved to our own emotions. And we think, oh, I just feel awful about myself. I can't believe what I've done. I can't believe who I am. And what, what the gospel does is it frees us from the obsession of ourselves, being self-focused, self-absorbed. And it frees us to see the God who is full of mercy and compassion and steadfast love. And it takes our focus off of me. And it's a focus shift that needs to happen for all of us. We're all by default lovers of self. Let's turn to Psalm 51, and we're going to see how David actually shows us that when he's broken and when he's in a state of repentance, he's actually worshiping the Lord with his guilt and shame. So just as a, uh, a background to Psalm 51, if you see at the very beginning there, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. To, before we start reading this, so let's think about that real quick. So David committed adultery, mur murdered this woman's husband, 
and committed adultery with her, made her his wife. Nathan, a prophet sent by the Lord, came to him, and he basically told him this, like, you know, fictional story about a man, just this horrible man, did this horrible thing. And David, David's, uh, his emotions were stirred up. And the, the, the primary emotion that he experienced was anger. He said, oh, this man's horrible. This man's, he's an, he's an awful man. He should die even. And Nathan looks at him and goes, that's you. You're that guy. And David was crushed. And you see that he actually repents and he says, oh, I've done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. I need, I need him to forgive me. And this psalm is the result of what happened there. God used guilt and shame in that moment to bring uh, David to this place where he wrote this psalm. So let's read it together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And watch for the worship. Watch for him ascribing to God what God can only give. God alone can forgive our sin. God alone can wash us clean. Now watch how he points to God and worships him. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He knows that God alone can do this. So he's saying, you alone can blot out my transgressions. You alone are one who has abundant mercy. Nobody else has this for me. There's no other well I can go to. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the inward heart. Um, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. That's faith. I know, he's saying, I know that if you purge me, I'll be clean. It'll be, you'll get the job done. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would, will not be pleased with burnt offerings the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion. I'm just going to read this real quick, too, because the, the, there is significance. Do good, good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So those last two verses is mainly about the restoration of the kingdom. And Christ is that restoration of the kingdom. But back to the fact that spirit-filled worship conforms these emotions to where they need to be. When we worship the Lord, when we, when we are freed from obsession over ourselves and how we feel and um, what our emotions are doing to us, we are actually, um, we're actually being humble. When you, when you put yourself before the Lord, before the throne of grace, you are humbly accepting mercy. So the people that, um, the prideful, they're not, they don't, they don't accept that they need mercy so they don't actually, they don't actually receive it. The humble worshipers are willing to admit that they need mercy so they are the ones that receive it. Also, um, as we said before, that, that guilt and shame should not be the strongest horses, joy should be the strongest horse. So our, uh, the, the, what drives us should not be guilt and shame. What drives us should be spirit-driven worship. So if I could help equip you with how to conform these emotions, it would be to be a worshiper, to be one who it puts the glory of God before you, that puts the mercy of God before you and continually reminding yourself that God is a merciful God and he is the only one that can cleanse me from my sin. Creating worship in the place of guilt and shame is the Spirit's work. It's the Spirit's work from when you were converted. It is the Spirit's work from here on out. He takes where there was guilt and shame and he replaces it with worship. So thirdly, harness, harnessing our emotions through gospel-centered love. Now, on this, I want not only to turn our focus away from ourselves and to God, but away from ourselves to one another. Because emotional intelligence isn't just being aware of your own emotions. It's being aware of the motions of people around you. And as a church, we need to understand this concept of gospel-centered love. So as we said, the, the, the laws boil down to loving God and loving your neighbor. And as we deal with one another, we're going to sin against one another. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to see each other's sin. What do we do when that happens? Should guilt and shame be our primary motivator, our primary um, tool? I think not. I think not. I, but I think a lot of times it is. I think we, our, our automatic default is to say, you've done wrong, and leave it at that. And even though there are times when love is a Nathan, love actually has to go and confront. 
I think more often than not, we need to be reminded that love covers a multitude of sins. So when someone sins against you, and you, you don't like how that made you feel, and you want to turn around and maybe possibly punish that person for doing what they just did, and make them feel guilty, think twice, because the gospel covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins, so it automatically will exclude using guilt and shame as a motivator to get someone to change. Also be on guard for one another. In Acts 15, we see a story of the new believers in Antioch who were Gentiles, and they were they believed in Jesus and they were growing and then all of a sudden these Judaizers come around and they say, you can't, you can't be Christians, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. So these Christians are burdened and troubled by this and, and Paul and Barnabas are with them so they started disputing with these Judaizers. And the Christians said, Paul and Barnabas, will you go to the elders for us and figure out what we should do about this? So they do, and they go and meet with the elders, and they discuss the matter, and their final conclusion is, we're going to write the church of Antioch a letter helping them decipher what to do here. And what they end up saying is, is really interesting. I'll just read it to you. In Acts 15, he says, this is, this is something that he says in the letter. It says, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So he's saying some people came from us and they came to you and they're troubling you with these standards, but they weren't sent by us and they're unsettling your minds. So, brothers and sisters, if we're to be on guard for one another, we're to be on guard for those people and for those emotions that would trouble us and would unsettle our minds. If you see a brother or sister next to you or in your life that seems troubled, be on guard for them, pray for them, and bring the gospel into that situation. Remind them of who they are. Maybe, you, maybe you're going to be the one that God uses to lead them to the throne of grace, to write their own Psalm 51. Be on guard for one another. Like I said, sometimes love is a Nathan. There will be times when we need to confront one another. But here's what we need to remember. Restoration is the goal. Condemnation is not. Huge. Parents with your children. Restoration is the goal. Uh, reconciliation with the Father is the goal. Not condemnation. You know, a lot of times as parents, our pride wells up and we say, you're, you're interrupting my life or my world and therefore I will lash out and make you feel bad as a punishment. But if our goal is restoration, if our goal is reconciliation with the Father, then we'll be very careful how we use God's standards, God's law, and we'll be gentle 
And we need to be that way toward one another. Because we, I think we underestimate the power of guilt and shame in the lives of people. What it can actually do to weigh down a person. And a lot of times children don't show signs when they're little. But I think if, if it's a constant, um, if, it's a, if it's a constant practice of using guilt and shame as a motivator that actually weighs on them and they'll carry it and it'll form their identities and make it harder for them to receive grace. I know when I came to Christ, one of the things that was weighing me down is that I just felt so worthless. That was the one main thing that I thought before I confessed my need for a savior. I'm just so worthless. I don't see a purpose for me on this earth. There are a lot of people around you that feel that same way. It's that's shame. And you can be used by the Lord. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be someone who is on YouTube or famous. Your name doesn't have to be out there. You can be used by the Lord mightily just by seeing somebody carrying guilt and shame and leading them to the throne of grace where they find mercy and steadfast love and restoration with the Father. Anybody around you, anybody that God has put in your life, maybe a mom or a dad, maybe a brother or a sister, physical brother or sister, maybe a coworker. Gospel-centered love is how you're going to harness these emotions. Again, we don't stuff them down. We don't ignore them. We don't trust them. But harnessing them means, how can I see this as an opportunity to inject the gospel, the good news that Jesus has obeyed the law on our behalf, has paid for our sins in full, that the work is done, And what's our job? Trust. It's faith. It is putting our trust in the finished work of Christ. And that's not just to be saved, that's to be sanctified. We are, we grow through the gospel. In Galatians, Paul gets angry. He gets angry at a false gospel being brought to the church. And he says, Basically, and putting in my own words, if anybody brings to you a different gospel than what I've brought to you, let him be accursed. And he says, I repeat, he says it again. Why is he so protective over the church, over the gospel? Because he knows they're not just saved by the gospel, that they are sanctified by the gospel, they grow by the gospel, and so do we. We will help one another grow through the gospel. We need to remind each other who we are. We need to say things like, that's not, that's not fitting for a saint. You're still a saint, but that, what you're doing may not be fitting. That's actually scriptural language. Remind us, remind each other who we are in Christ. You're no longer a slave to fear. You're a child of God. We forget that. I forget it every day. I forget it every hour of every day. 
And if I could hear it from my fellow brothers and sisters, hey, did you, did you know that, that you're saved from God's wrath? Hey, did you know that you're a precious son or a daughter in Christ? Just little reminders like that. Just send out a text. Just remind your brothers and sisters of the truths of the gospel and who they are. I have not been watching the time. I really, I'm not good with watching the time. How am I doing? At this point, I think we can let the, let the Holy Spirit work through our discussion time. This is Circle Sunday, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to do a work in us. Now, Father, we come to you in worship. And we confess that you alone are the well. You alone are the well of mercy, steadfast love that we need to drink from. We confess that you are worthy of our worship. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to sift and decipher these emotions through faith. God, you would help us as a church to grow in these areas of handling and dealing with these emotions of guilt and shame. God, I pray that you would free your people through the gospel, that we would be able to grow together in the gospel, and that you would use this time to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.